Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 8, The Economics of Healthcare, Part 1. This episode explains why our current healthcare system is economically unaffordable. My guest today is Gerald Friedman, Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Professor Friedman obtained his Ph.D. in 1986 from Harvard University and has published numerous books, papers, and articles. He has been researching the economics of healthcare for 15 years. I would like to let my listeners know that my interview of Professor Friedman will cover two episodes, eight and nine. This episode, part one, explains why we cannot afford our current health care system. Part two, available on April 1st, explains how a single-payer Medicare for All system would make health care affordable and available to everyone. And now, the economics of health care, part one. Professor Gerald Friedman, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Oh, thank you for having me. And go ahead, call me Jerry. Thank you. So today we're going to discuss the economics of single payer. But before we get into that, I'd like to know, is our current health care system affordable? <laughs> yeah, well, that's really a very important bottom line question that gets missed in all the discussion of how expensive single payer would be. And the answer is no. The current system costs $3.5 trillion, or close to 20% of our national income. So about 20 cents out of every dollar of output produced goes for the current health care system. That's going to rise over the next decade. These are the projections from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They're not my numbers. They're the official government numbers. They expect spending under the current system will rise $6 trillion in 2028, at which point we won't be spending 20 cents out of every dollar. We'll be spending closer to 30 cents out of every dollar on health care, and it will just keep on going up. I mean, this is what's been going on in the United States for the last 45 years. Health care has been increasing at a faster pace than the economy as a whole. Some of that is because the population has gotten bigger. You know, it keeps getting bigger, so we spend more on health care. Some of it is that we're aging, and an older population uses more health care. A little bit is that we're using more health care per person, but very little of the increase is because of greater utilization. The rest, over half of the increase in spending, is because of inflation. Normal inflation plus this extra bit of medical price inflation, where prices for health care have been rising faster than prices for everything else. And that is what distinguishes the United States from the rest of the world. And all we can see going forward is more of the same. In Canada, medical prices have been increasing at the same rate as everything else. So they've gone from 7% of gross domestic product being spent on health care to 10% today. In the United States, medical prices have been rising 1% to 1.5% a year faster than everything else. 
And that has driven healthcare from 7% of gross domestic product to about 18% today and just heading on up from there. So the current system is not affordable because we have allowed healthcare prices to rise at a faster rate than everything else. It's not that we're using more healthcare. We actually use less healthcare than do people in other affluent countries. It's because we let the price of healthcare go up faster than everything else. I mean, you look at drugs. When I first started doing Medicare for all work 15 years ago, drug prices in the United States were 50%, 60% higher than in other countries. Now, drug prices are twice as high as in other countries. And that's according to the Trump administration, where the Secretary of Health and Human Services is a former executive at a drug company. So these are their numbers. And for some drugs, like insulin, prices in the United States for insulin, for Humalog, are almost seven times as much as in Canada. The same drug made by Eli Lilly costs seven times as much in the United States, in Maine or Vermont, as it does in Quebec or Ontario. And that's what's driving rising health care costs, and that's what's making health care unaffordable in the United States. Families are cutting back on everything else. People are buying less restaurant meals. They have shorter vacations. People are economizing on everything else so that they can afford the rising cost of health care. And, you know, you can do that for a while, but eventually you just start running out of other things to economize on. Of course, the other way we economize on health care is that we just shut some people out. The Affordable Care Act has helped on that because it has brought more people into health insurance. More people have health insurance than 10 years ago. But more of those people are what we call underinsured. According to the Commonwealth Fund, close to half the adult population is uninsured or underinsured. About 10% don't have insurance. Another 10% of adults have a gap in their insurance coverage during the year. 25% have insurance policies that are so meager, deductibles that are so high, that in effect, if these people have a medical problem, their insurance isn't going to help. It's not good enough to keep them out of medical bankruptcy or allow them access to the health care system. And if you look at counties across the United States, Areas with more underinsured people have higher mortality. As much as 10% of mortality in the United States now can be associated with underinsurance. People who don't have insurance or people whose insurance isn't good enough so that they can afford to go to the doctor. 200,000 excess deaths in the United States because of this lack of good, decent health insurance, good enough that they can go to the doctor or the drugs that they've been prescribed. About 20% of Americans report that they did not fill a prescription in the last year because they couldn't afford it. So what you get is it's getting more expensive than we can afford financially, but it's also getting more expensive than we can afford in terms of people's lives. People are dying because they don't have health insurance. And that's something else that needs to be counted here. When we talk about the $3.5 trillion that we spend on health care, we really should add to that the cost of the excess deaths because of limited access to health care. If you have 200,000 people dying because of a lack of access to decent health care, 
then that is billions and billions of dollars of productivity, of pain and suffering, all those things that are associated with people not having access to health care, real economic or social costs. So we can't afford the current system financially, and we can't afford the current system because it's killing too many Americans. And that is just going to get worse and worse because the only way we have in the current system, the only way we have to economize is we don't have an effective way of restricting the excess pricing of drugs. We don't have an effective way of restricting the excess pricing at hospitals. We don't have an effective way of getting the inefficiency of the health insurance system out of our economy. We don't have any way of controlling this rising cost of health care except by keeping people out of access, preventing people from going to the doctor. That's what we've been doing with rising deductibles, rising co-pays for the last 20 years. That's been our policy. started with the HMOs, and now it's gone to high-deductible health plans. And that's the only way we have of controlling costs. And that way doesn't really control costs because it kills people. It just transfers it from some financial cost to another part of the ledger. But either way, the rising cost of health care is not affordable for our economy and our society. What would be the effect eventually on Medicare? If we made it Medicare for all? No, if we kept our current health care system. Oh, oh, if we keep the current system, what will happen to the Medicare system? Yes. The same as will be happening to everything else. Because the way we control costs, the only way we control costs is by restricting access. So what will happen to the Medicare system if we go on the path we're going, governments are going to be scrounging for how can we save money? How can we save money? How can we control costs? And it's all going to come around to some form of rationing. Of course, they'll be raising the premium on Medicare Part B, you know, which is just shifting the cost from the federal government to the elderly. And they'll also start nibbling at the edges with restrictions on access to certain hospitals, certain types of facilities, because they're going to have to be finding ways to squeeze money out of the system. And that's going to start affecting the elderly. They've been well insulated compared to the rest of the economy or the rest of the population. If you're 50 and you have an employer-provided plan, chances are you have family coverage, which most people can't get anymore. But if you do, you family deductibles into $3,000 on average. You know, it tells you something. 20 years ago when I started this, the annual survey of employee benefits did not report a number for the deductible, the average deductible on health plans, because it was so low nobody cared. It used to be $100 for the health plan that I have. They started reporting that 15 years ago. And now the average deductible, like I say, for a family plan is over $2,000. Is that per person or for the whole family? That would be for the family. That's the average for the family. So the first $2,000 of medical costs for your family, you pay out of pocket. And then about, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, they started reporting co-pays. Again, when 30 years ago, my plan, ah, what did we have? We had a $10 co-pay. You didn't think about it very much. Now it's something much more than that. But the government started reporting these co-pays because they started getting to be significant enough that they really matter. So you may have a $2,000 deductible, so you pay the first $2,000. And then you go to the doctor and you think, oh, finally, I'm going to get you know some medical coverage. But the first $45, first $50 is your co-pay. And increasingly, 
there are narrow networks. So if your doctor, you may have been seeing this doctor for years, and we would say you should keep going to that doctor because you have a relationship. That doctor knows you, knows your family history, all that. You want to maintain this relationship. It's been shown that maintaining a relationship with a physician helps people recover. It helps people stay healthy. That's a good thing. But the insurance plans are always changing their networks to try to get bargaining leverage against the doctors and the hospitals. So if you go out of network because now your old doctor is not in your network, then you may get a deductible of $75 or $100. That's pretty standard. So the insurance ends up paying $40, $50, and you're paying all the rest. And that's increasing the, the way it's done. So what do people do? Facing these deductibles and facing these copays, they don't go to the doctor. They don't fill their prescriptions. And usually that's going to be fine. Usually you don't go to the doctor, you're going to get better anyway. But sometimes you won't. It doesn't only add to the cost to society because people get sick, they get sicker, they die, but it even adds to the financial cost. That lump that could have been excised very easily if you had just gone to the doctor when you first felt it, you know, you wait around for a while because you don't want to be paying the deductible. You wait until you've paid the deductible for something else, and then you go to the doctor. You don't want to pay the copay. You know, all these reasons people don't go to the doctor because of the cost. And the plans are designed to discourage people from going to the doctor. That's why they have copays and deductibles. But then when you finally do go, it's more expensive. And you may have a major medical episode. But, of course, the insurance companies are hoping that by then you'll be with another plan or you'll be dead or next year's budget cycle. So the insurance companies are often driven by these really short-term thinking. They don't care what it's going to cost them next year. They just want to save money this year so they can report higher profit. That was short-sighted uh, financial accounting. But Medicare will be cut back. There's no way the federal government is going to start putting more and more general fund revenue into paying for Medicare. And that's what's going to be necessary because the Medicare trust fund is going to be running out in like seven years now. The drug benefit is out of control and current law forbids the federal government from negotiating drug prices. So the drug companies, big pharma, just jacks up prices. And with these rising costs, they're going to be looking for ways to squeeze Medicare. I mean, the Trump administration and Paul Ryan, who was Speaker of the House until this year, were looking to cut Medicare. Paul Ryan, <laughs> you know, this is the Speaker of the House, the number two person or the number three person in the Republican Party nationwide. He said that when he was in college, he and his friends would sit around drinking beer, talking about how much they want to do away with Medicare. He's a little bit on the extreme side, but looking at how expensive Medicare is going to get over the next 10 years, with the aging of the population and rising health care costs, they will be cutting it back. Everything's going to be cut back. Everything meaning our access to health care will be cut back over the next 10 years because there's no way we can afford rising costs that are currently projected. So to control those costs, they'll cut back on our access. I think I could just stop here, not even get into the cost of Medicare for all. The other thing, though, I'd like to ask you, there's another hidden cost with our current health care system, and that's the suppression of wages. Could you talk about that? Oh, absolutely. And that's what's going on when I say that you know people are cutting back on everything else. They're cutting back on spending on housing. They're cutting back on spending on transportation. Cutting back on spending on clothing, food away from home, food in the home. I mean, all these activities are being cut back. 
And what's behind that is wages are being held down. We have been living in a new period in American economic history. People have done some really creative work to develop these data series, which trace wages for certain occupations like carpenters, bricklayers, teamsters. It used to be teamsters with horses. Now it's teamsters with trucks. But going back to the 1790s, and if you go back to all the way back, you know, from the 1790s to the 1830s, nothing much happened. But after that, you start getting a sustained growth in wages. By the 1890s, it's really hitting a steady pace where wages are rising by one and a half, one point seven percent a year. And that continues down to the 1970s. This is the great flowering of the American middle class. Working Americans are earning more and settle into a routine where they expect that they'll be earning more every year. Since the 1970s, that's changed. Wages for most of the period since 1973 have been flat. There was a little brief period in the in the 1990s under President Clinton where wages went up at the old rate. But otherwise, wages have been pretty much stagnant. Part of that is there's a shift towards capital, profits, which is what's behind this soaring stock market. But the other part, and this is what conservative economists will emphasize, is they'll say, oh, no, wages have gone down, or wages have been stagnant. But compensation has been rising. What's been happening is businesses are not able to pay higher wages because they're paying so much for health insurance. And if you take the increase in health insurance premiums paid by the employer, not even talking about what's being paid by the worker through co-pays, deductibles, and employer share of health insurance, but when you take all the rising costs of health insurance paid by the employer, that's money that could have gone to wages. And that amounts to like $7,000 per worker in the U.S. economy. That's a lot of money. That's the money that under the old period where wages were rising 1.5, 1 1.7% a year, that's the money that would have gone to your paycheck. But now wages are stagnant, and a big part of that is because the money's going to health insurance instead of to your wages. So the average American worker is down $7,000, and that's average American worker who has health insurance is down $7,000 a year because that's money going to health insurance instead of to wages. But it gets worse because more Americans don't have health insurance to work. The share of workers with health insurance was about two out of three 20 years ago, and now it's barely one out of two. For close to 20% of American workers, They've lost what used to be the health insurance that they would get from their employer. So what's happening to these people? They don't have health insurance to work? Well, some of them are getting health insurance through Medicaid. Some have been going without health insurance, but others are getting health insurance on their own. Workers who used to be working at a newspaper, they may have been members of the journalist union, and they had health insurance through work. Well, now they're working as independent contractors, freelance, and they have to buy the health insurance for themselves. Truckers, a lot of truckers are in that situation. We just had a box delivered by Federal Express. Most of the Federal Express workers aren't employees of Federal Express. They're independent contractors. So they have to get the health insurance for themselves. They're not getting it through work. And then you have lots of workers who are still employees, but they're not getting health insurance anymore. The company just doesn't offer health insurance. So all these workers are buying health insurance for themselves, which costs 
six, seven thousand dollars for an individual, eighteen thousand dollars for a family. And that's like I said, that's for increasingly for a plan with higher deductibles and higher copays than it used to be. So all of this is shifting the cost of our bloated, overpriced healthcare system onto workers. You're paying higher premiums, you're paying premiums where you used to get the benefit through work, and then when you have the plan, you have to pay higher deductibles, higher copays. And then you get sicker because to try to avoid these higher costs, you don't go to the doctor when you probably should. So altogether, it sucks. And then you'll retire and Medicare will be cut back. And like I say, and then people squeeze every place else. You know, they don't buy clothes as much. They don't take vacations the way they used to. All to save money for healthcare. And then, of course, the irony is, having done all this to save money for healthcare, more and more Americans are going bankrupt. When they do get a healthcare episode, which may be worse than it would have been if they had been treated earlier, if you have a $2,000 deductible and you're admitted to a hospital, most Americans, first of all, do not have $2,000 cash in hand. Something like half of Americans don't have $500 cash in hand. So you start scrambling for the 2000 But then you're in the hospital, and at some point they let you out. They send you home. And you've got all these other expenses, whether from co-pays or just stuff that's not covered. Home health care generally isn't covered in most health plans. So you start having to pay for all that. And before you know it, you've borrowed from everybody you know, you've spent all your assets, and then you're often not working. So we get, what, one and a half million, 1.2 million Americans a year going bankrupt because they can't afford health care. And when we talk about the cost of health care, in addition to the financial cost, $3.5 trillion, in addition to all the excess debt, all the excess illness, we also should add the damage to our financial system. If we have all these people going bankrupt because they can't afford health care, that hurts the financial stability of the hospitals, of the banking system. Maybe what you do is you don't make payments on your mortgage, so your house gets seized. That undermines real estate values for all your neighbors. We're all paying in all these different ways, and the more you look at it, the more different ways you see that we're paying for this overpriced inefficient healthcare system that's threatening to bankrupt the whole country. Jerry, thank you for explaining why our healthcare system is not affordable. This ends part one of the economics of healthcare. In part two, Professor Friedman will discuss how Medicare for All would make healthcare affordable and available to everyone. Note that Medicare for All Explained is now available on iTunes, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. So check your preferred platform on April 1st for part two of the economics of healthcare. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.